I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Um, well, it's my pleasure to welcome you, and it's particularly a pleasure to be here this evening to be in conversation with uh, James. Uh, I'm sure that James is very well known to, to all of you, um, uh, and a contributing editor to the London Review of Books, um, a very established uh, and, uh, and well-recognised and award-winning writer. Um, James is known to me through his writings on, uh, on politics, uh, but also through his, uh, his, work of, uh, his works of fiction. Um, before we start, James is incredibly prolific. We're discussing a new book of his, but there's also another book on the horizon, a novel, which will be out on the 5th of September, to Kelly in Ordinary Time. So that's something to, to look out for. Um, I was going to start off by saying that um, this book, Dreams of Leaving and, and Remaining, is on the one hand, a, a Brexit book, uh, but it's also not really a Brexit book. And I thought I would say that because I suppose everybody is, is more or less uh, 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 done with Brexit and exhausted of thinking about Brexit, but clearly the numbers here suggest that perhaps not. Perhaps there's appetite for more, for more discussion. Um, but this is not your standard book around uh, the UK's exit from the European Union. Um, uh, that's a discussion that's been dominated by technicalities, by questions of parliamentary procedure, by votes, by bills, by negotiations. Um, and this book is about something entirely different. It's a real breath of fresh air for those of us who consume the business of Brexit on a, on a, daily, uh, on a daily basis. Now, I wanted to, to ask James as a way into our, our conversation... Um, one of the big ideas, I suppose, of the book, and this really comes into the title, is the notion of dreaming, the notion of uh, myths. Uh, so, James, maybe you can kick off by saying, what is it about myths, about dreaming, that interests you, and how does that form the basis for, uh, for, uh, for this, this particular book? Well, when you uh, go around the country uh, and ask people about, about things, uh, about... The question that you're trying to find out the answer to, whether it's um, what's going to happen to farming after Brexit or why in this depressed northern town, um, which historically has been a Labour constituency, are people suddenly so interested in UKIP? Um, you, you ask concrete questions, you, um, you get uh, concrete answers, but uh, you also begin to perceive uh, 
in the, in the gaps, in the things that people say in between their answers that, that don't seem perhaps to make complete sense um, in the context of, um, of an actual question, something else. Um, and um, even before um, I worked on the, on the essays in this book, um, I was becoming more and more interested with um, the idea of how it is that individuals represent the world to themselves, um, a, a kind of political psychology, if you like. Um, there, we all have, there's, there's no real way of escaping this, um, a, a set of constructs that we, that we build up um, beyond that which we can immediately apprehend. Um, we see Theresa May on the television, um, but there's also our, our fantasy Theresa May, our kind of shorthand Theresa May. Um, we, we talk about the conservatives, but it's, it's, not a, it's not a real thing. We have to have some kind of imaginary placeholder for this concept of the Tories or Labour or Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, but it goes much deeper than that, I think. Um, and um, I use um, at one point in the book this, this comparison um, with the, uh, the Aboriginal dreaming in, in Australia. And, and that might seem a very extreme jump, um, almost a, perhaps an act of, of cultural appropriation, and perhaps some people might think a, a rather insensitive one, given the history of, of Australia. But I, I think, in a way, it's, it's apt, just in the sense that, in the same way that um, the, um, the Aboriginal dreaming represents this kind of, this sort of everywhere, this... Um, this uh, set of, nas- of, of, of myths um, and stories um, about ancient heroes, um, which is, doesn't really, is, is the opposite of academic writing. It's not, it's not researched. It doesn't rely on, on specific instances of real, actual people. It's, it's heroes um, and villains uh, and forces who are represented uh, in, a kind of, in a kind of shorthand. Um, and, and that's one of the, the threads that um, I've, been trying to, I've been trying to follow um, throughout this, this book. Uh, and so, for example, when I talk about um, people, believers, um, buying into the idea of uh, Brexit as, as a St. George event, um, as a single act of slaying um, a dragon which would um, bring peace and prosperity to the land. I don't mean, of course, that everyone I met in, in Grimsby and, and villages in Norfolk was kind of rushing up to me and saying, we've killed the dragon. Um, no, I, what I mean is that um, there's a way, there has to be a way of, um, of defining people's apprehension of, of the wider structure of the world that is not an academic, scientific, researched one. Um, but that is more respectful of, of simply saying, um, oh, they're just being silly, they don't know what they're talking about, it doesn't make any sense. Um, so by putting it in some kind of um, mythical framework, uh, you, uh, you, you create a pattern that, that makes sense both to somebody um, who's looking at it from an academic point of view, but also to, to the people themselves who hold this way of looking at the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the the specifics of these sort of Brexit myths versus these remaining myths. Um, but before I do, there's something about the notion of dreaming, which I suppose I wanted to ask you is that in some ways, it's, you know, as a term, it's quite ambivalent because it evokes, on the one hand, the sense of the utopia, 
you know, the, the, you have a dream, something you want to realize, but it also has a, a more atavistic quality. It's also the sort of the bubbling up of the subconscious. Um, so is that, are those two elements of the sort of the term of dreaming present in these different myths? Very much so. But I think um, the, the, the crucial thing is the, um, is the mixture of, is the blending of personal history and actual wider history. The history that you and your family and your friends have directly experienced and how you remember that and how that gets mixed in with the contemporaneous um, reporting of it that you hear from other sources, whether newspapers or books or the TV. Um, I had a, uh, an epiphany many years ago um, when uh, I was living in Ukraine. And actually, no, it was when I was in Russia, but I came back to Ukraine to, to write about it. It was the 10th anniversary of the, uh, the Chernobyl disaster. And so I came back to Kiev and I talked to a lot of people who were involved, who worked at the reactor, um, who'd, who'd suffered, who'd, who'd, um, whose children, for example, had had thyroid cancer as a result of the explosion and so on. And I began to notice something very strange about the things that people were saying when I asked them about the consequences of the disaster. Um, they would talk about um, pensions. They would talk about um, how um, uh, Russia and Ukraine weren't united anymore um, because the Soviet Union collapsed. And I, I began to realize that in their minds, these two events, which happened quite close to each other, um, their personal experience of the Chernobyl disaster and the collapse and their personal experience of the collapse of the, Union, of the Soviet Union, together with everything they read and heard about um, at that time, um, were mixed together in their minds in a way that um, they weren't even aware of. Uh, and, um, and that's not being patronizing. It's, it's just the way it, it, it comes out. Uh, and I, I've been thinking about that a lot um, over the past few years as I as I've gone around and, and had these, these long, very, very intense conversations with people about their lives and about the way they see the world now. Um, and, and I've come to feel that something similar is happening here, um, that, uh, that people are entwining um, their uh, economic suffering um, with their sense that... Um, culture has radically changed in a way that they don't like. Um, and so these, these two theoretically quite separate things have actually become entwined. Um, and the other, um, the other realization I had in, uh, in the Soviet Union when, when I, I saw how um, miserable people were um, by, made, made so miserable by the collapse of the Soviet Union, not everyone obviously, but many, um, I... Uh, I realized it wasn't just the thing that happened in that moment. It was that uh, by something being destroyed and denigrated, it reached back into their history. And it, uh, it made it seem as if their whole lives had been worthless. Not just that they had lost in that moment, but they had lost for a very long time and that everything was, was downgraded and, and, and denigrated and, and uh, slandered. Um, and so I wonder whether what has happened um, in, in certain communities um, in this country is that these two strands of, of a sense of cultural estrangement from, uh, from sort of accepted discourse now um, and economic 
suffering have become mixed up. Uh, and the resentment that comes from seeing your, your factory closed um, and uh, austerity eat into the, uh, the welfare provisions that you're used to and the public services you're used to, that that's become mixed up with um, the sense that the kind of jokes that you used to tell when you were, you were young, um, the, the way that it was, it was perfectly acceptable to make fun of foreigners, um, for men to make fun of women, um, for everyone to have a kind of a particular stereotyped role, for there to be clear um, hierarchies of, of, of gender and race and class, um, that not only um, are people uh, upset that that's gone in the moment now that it's happening, but it's as if their whole childhoods, their youth, uh, the time when they were young and fell in love, um, that this is being somehow denigrated as well. That was the, the, the quite complex mix of personal and um, cultural and economic um, uh, feelings that I, that I was getting when I uh, went out and had these, these long, deep conversations with, um, with people. I suppose in the, in the time that's elapsed since the, the UK's vote on the EU referendum, some of what you're describing, which in the book I think is generally applied to trying to understand the sentiments of leavers, can begin to also be applied to the sentiments of remainers. Um, that sense of, uh, of loss, of trying to make sense of uh, events, um, that something has been denigrated, I suppose, some sort of sense of the European project. Um, reading, I mean, reading your book, it made me think of... Um, there's a phrase which I associate with... Uh, with the Labour MP Rachel Reeves, I'm sure she got it from somewhere else, but it's, um, it's the idea that in the vote of 2016, Remainers voted with their heads, uh, whereas the Leavers voted with their hearts. Um, and what I found particularly interesting about your book is that you, you, know, you say it, I think, very forcefully, that that does somewhat of an injustice to Remainers, that there is a Remain dream, um, a Remain sort of, uh, you know, a heartfelt sentiment, um, now, we'll talk about the, the Brexit myths, which I think I sort of uh, had a certain set of responses to, but, um, but can you first of all try and articulate something which we hear much less of, which, was, which is the Remain dream? How do you, how do you feel? Well, it, it is difficult, and, and I think um, to the extent that um, I, I've taken anything positive from this whole mess, it, it is that, that I have um, interrogated my own feelings um, quite Intensely, and I, and I think it's, it's one of those situations where there's um, you're sort of part of the reporting has to be inside yourself. You know, you, you can start with investigating uh, the status of your own of your own attitudes. Um, for example, um, it reminds me a little bit of um, of the situation during the Iraq War um, or before the Iraq War, um, rather, um, where was this tremendous protest against the Iraq war um, on the streets of London. Um, and that was great. Um, but still, I had this nagging feeling that the most powerful driver of that was um, the protesters' sense of their own worth, um, rather than a, a real interest. Yes, a general concern, but rather than a real interest in what the people of Iraq were actually feeling. Um, it was more about it was more about Britain, and there's something the same, I think, with Romanism now. It's about staying in Europe 
is best for Britain. If, if Remainers were real Europeans, then they would be concerned about what was best for Europe, which might not necessarily be what's best for Britain. Um, that's quite a, a radical thing to say, but um, if you're not prepared to at least entertain that possibility, then you're so far away from um, working out a, a future uh, for us um, that um, you, you've got a long way to go. Um, the Remainer dream. Um, well, one of the things, um, one of the personal consequences of, of what's happened over the past few years is that I, I have... I do feel myself much more isolated, um, and I think that's quite healthy. I, I think um, that uh, the understanding that you may be a minority when you thought you were mainstream um, is, is maybe, maybe quite um, a bracing and, and refreshing thing. Uh, it maybe means that you should be trying to work harder um, to, uh, to, to look beyond your, your own immediate uh, group, your, your, your loyalty group, uh, and, uh, and think about, about what a, a wider group of people are saying. But yes, it it's, it's can be a bit of a lonely and depressing feeling. Um, and uh, I suppose in trying to set these, what seem to me to be quite clear um, myths of um, St. George and Robin Hood against a, a defining, driving myth um, that could inspire and unite Remainers. I kind of came up short, um, and it was it was rather um, gloomy to to realise. In the same way that I had this sudden feeling that there weren't really any street fighters on the on the Remain side, um, I thought, well, what are what are our what are our myths? What are our legends? Um, and I began to think about um, about the myth of of the youngest son. Uh, the fairy story about uh, the youngest son who leaves uh, the, the home of, of the poor woodcutter and goes off to find his fortune. Um, and in a way, that is the, the Remainer myth. Paradoxically, the Remainer myth is the myth of somebody who leaves, uh, somebody who, who betters themselves, who, who gets an education, who rises through their own talents, who, who leaves behind the, the settled community. Um, and, uh, and goes out to, to, to seek the world. But that leads you to, to some very, very difficult contradictions, um, which is that uh, I, and, and I, I would guess, uh, a wild guess, many of you, um, love the idea of, of the settled community, love the idea of the place that stays the same, that it's tradition, that is true to, to place and, and origin and things being done as they were before. But we also like the idea of being able to leave that place and go to another place, um, which is also traditional and um, true to itself uh, and of itself. Um, and then another place and then another place. Um, but is not our very movement and our desire to keep on um, hopping from, from place to place um, to have access to all these traditions, is that not uh, in itself something that is, is destructive uh, and contradictory? Uh, so I, I haven't really got, a, got an answer to this. Um, and, and I suspect that um, the answer lies somewhere within the realm of uh, 
breaking away from the kind of conformity, global conformity that we have at the moment, which is being driven very much by, by global consumerist capital, um, and moving towards a different kind of uniformity, which is a baseline of public services that is universal around the world, within which uh, the kind of cultural distinctiveness that we do and should cherish can, can thrive. That's a very utopian idea, but um, I think that's what, the, uh, that's what the Remainer dream should be. Uh, but that's a much more uh, internationalist utopia than any of the utopians, the utopias I've, I'm getting at the moment from the Remainers, which, which, as far as I can see, are let's just leave everything the way it was before. If, um, if we were to... I mean, you sort of you end the book very forcefully with this this plea for um, a, a universal network of you know uh, funded public services and public goods that we that we cherish uh, provided to a to a high level. Um, if we were to accept for the moment, and we can talk about this, that maybe the global scale is you know excessively ambitious. Um, what if we were to try and reduce that down to the European level? Um, would what you're suggesting be, if it was to take some sort of concrete material form, be precisely the thing which has now been articulated by the French president, Emmanuel Macron, where he talks about a Europe that protects. And he is essentially saying that in order to have the things that we value um, internally, we do have to have pretty firm and pretty solid external barriers. But inside of Europe, we can really have this this openness that you describe. Is that a sort of a halfway house to the Remainer dream you describe? Well, yes and no. I mean, yes, um, and, and that is why um, I voted to remain, because um, I felt that um, Europe was um, a base uh, which could provide, and, and yeah, let's, let's, be, let's be honest, does provide um, an inspiration to other countries in the world which... Um, you know, for all Europe's faults, it does provide an example of relative fairness, relative justice, and relative, um, relatively good provision of of services. Uh, it defends people, um, but that Macron idea, that defence, can easily, um, well, I was going to say morph into something, but it, in fact, it's just another version of what we already have, which is Fortress Europe. Um, it it um, if you're not working to, uh, to bring more countries into that sphere and more people into that sphere from, from outside the, the walls of Fortress Europe, um, then it means the walls have to be built higher and higher. Um, what is the use of, uh, of having um, a wonderful um, Swedish-style uh, welfare state um, across the whole of Europe. Um, and, and I think this would be a very good idea. Uh, might have avoided a lot of trouble, a, a pan-European minimum wage. Um, what's the use of having that if you're still reliant on uh, exploiting vastly underpaid labour in, in other countries to provide the, the raw materials uh, and the cheap manufactured goods um, that, uh, that keep your population happy? Um, 
is it not? Um, should you not embed within uh, your ambitions and your structure at least the aspiration uh, to, to work towards um, bringing other countries up to Europe's level uh, rather than um, digging in and simply trying to defend what we already have? There is a sense in which uh, Emmanuel Macron presents the ethically acceptable face of chauvinism insofar as it's pushed further away from our national borders. We can't see it quite as, uh, as tangibly. Um, I mean, there's a lot that we, can, you know, that we can pursue here. I wanted to press you on something which is the other side of the myths. Um, you know, we stand on the opposite sides of the, the Brexit divide. Um, and I was interested in reading this book you know, as a lever because it made me think a lot about my own motivations, my own sort of thoughts and feelings, um, rather than the more schematic and analytical sort of justifications that are elicited, uh, elicited from, uh, from an academic. Um, and I felt, I mean, I wondered, um, did you feel as you were writing the book that you had your sort of expectations about Brexiters confirmed, reaffirmed? Um, did you feel as if the people that you spoke with challenged the the Brexit stereotypes. How did you sort of, you know, discover well, that? Well, they're all they're all different, you know, um, and and along with because if, if you sit and talk with somebody, I mean, the, the standard journalistic thing is is to interview people for an hour maximum, um, and I tended to spend at least three or four hours with with people um, and and try and get as much as possible of their entire life story um, because I felt that um, that informed. Uh, informed everything really um, and and so with that you get not just people's views um, but their personalities um, and and so you think well this person's uh, raving mad but they're really really nice um, or, or you think um, this person's really horrible but making a lot of sense um, and, and all, all variations in between um, I mean uh, as you said I, I am a novelist and I I, I do um, take uh, a great interest in, in in how people got to where they were and, and, and their personalities. Um, I mean, uh, it's it's complex, and and I because I've I've taken so much time talking to people, I, I represent them. I try to represent them with equal fullness, and not to make uh, judgments um, about about them. And in a funny kind of way. Um, when you're doing a piece, um, you do have to sort of cast um, within limits. So it, it's not like, you know, in a, in a, in a, a TV studio or, or a daily newspaper, they will actually say, you know, it's, it's an hour to deadline. Can you get me somebody um, who's got six children and, and only one leg um, and is going to really suffer under this new tax law? You've got 60 minutes. Um, but... Um, it's not like that, but for example, with the piece I wrote about the NHS, um, I wanted to get across the idea that the elderly, which is a, a big part of, of um, what that story is about, um, that the elderly are, are us <laughs> um, and, uh, and not talk about the elderly um, as if it was sort of some remote thing um, but you know it is the thing either the thing that we already are or the thing that we are going to be 
Um, they're, they're just like us. And, and I thought um, the best way to do that would be to find somebody who was an old person, but who had been one of the early um, rockers, um, rock stars, um, a local rock star. Um, so I, I had no idea who I was looking for, um, any bands in, in Leicestershire, the place that I was writing this. Uh, I just thought, okay, I will find somebody who was in a band in Leicestershire, who was a young man, taking lots of drugs and, uh, and having a great time and gigging in Leicestershire in the 1960s, uh, and who's old now. Um, and they can be, you know, I, I will find something interesting there about the way that um, the elderly are perceived um, and, uh, and, and the way that they look at the world. And, and, and I did. I, I, somebody had written a, um, uh, a, a book about this band called Le Gay, which were big, was big in Leicester in the 1960s. Uh, they then mutated into a slightly bigger band called Gypsy. Maybe some of you have heard of them. Uh, maybe not. And, um, and so I found the, the sort of pretty much the last surviving member of this band. And so to that extent, I kind of I cast it. But I didn't expect, um, you know, I didn't know what situation he was going to be in. I imagine somebody who, um, who had taken lots of drugs, screwed around, um, had expected to die young and didn't. And that was exactly what I got. That was exactly what this, the situation this man was in. But what was interesting was that um, in the context of a book that was all about... Um, the NHS, and about caring for people who can no longer care for themselves. He had found himself in a completely unexpected position. Um, not only was he not dead, but he found himself um, caring for people with, with Downs um, and in, in a, a very low-paid job, um, ridiculously low-paid. I mean, he, he was basically being paid nothing to sleep over in a, in a charity-run care centre. Um, uh, and he was really pissed off. He hated his clients. Um, he had no... He, he was a sort of uncaring... Not, not an uncaring carer, but, you know, within, within the absolute bounds of what he had to do, he, um, he looked after these people. Um, he was unhappy with his life. He was unhappy that he hadn't died young. Um, he was unhappy that he didn't make the big time. Um, and he was also a bit unhappy about how the fact Leicester was full of, um, was full of immigrants. Um, and... Uh, he voted leave. Um, Lester went, uh, remained, but he voted leave. Uh, and this was, this was a, a young man who um, was absolutely out there in the 60s um, when Leicestershire was a pretty conservative place. Uh, they were dressing up in, in women's clothes, putting makeup on, um, and uh, having huge fights with local lads whenever they gigged in, in small villages around, around Leicestershire. It, it, it was a, a complicated story, and I, I didn't say he's this, he's that. I just... Um, I, but I, I, I characterised it. I, I made sure that um, I, I, um, I kind of underlined the irony of this um, careless artist who had become um, uh, a carer. Um, much against his will, uh, but I didn't take it any further than that. I liked him, um, but um, yeah, I mean, as he said, um, I, I don't want to be careful with somebody like me. <laughs> the, the the part of the the book that focuses on 
on the elderly and the NHS is uh, very, very touching and uh, uh, it's, uh, it's quite a, a difficult read. Um, and there is an enormous amount of empathy, I think, that comes through your, your writing. Um, and I suppose, I mean, that's something that struck me is how time and time again I've been struck by the way in which the, the outcome of the referendum reflected a certain lack of empathy. Uh, that is to say, a, an attempt to try and understand the other side. Um, and it certainly can be something that's uh, mutual. Um, you know, I speak from sort of the context of somebody who lives in a part of the country that is very solidly uh, remain, but has, you know, even just a few kilometres outside of the, the city of Cambridge, very solidly leave areas. Um, and I found it quite strong. You have strong. to roll up your windows when you drive there. Well, you then, because you're right. <laughs> well, I, I found yeah. that, you know, talking to people around me, there's you know, such a limited willingness to actually get out and understand why just a few kilometres down the road people think so viscerally uh, different from themselves. Uh, and so that certainly came out in, in the book, that willingness to try and sort of grapple and understand. Um, at some points, though, there were some characters when your cast of characters who did fit with some of these ideas that we often have about the, the Brexit voter. Um, and I wondered, I mean, you had the, the uh, especially the chapter on farming, which again, I mean, each one of the, 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 the nice things about the book is that um, it's more than a book about, you know, leave and remain. It's a book about big, uh, big ideas that sort of shape British society, about land, about life, about the sea, you know, about work. Um, and on the chapter about land, you had this, um, uh, this uh, Stuart Agnew fellow. Um, well, he's a UKIP, to, uh, a UKIP right. politician, one of the um, few politicians I actually uh, interviewed. That's right, as a, as a, and also as a farmer. And um, just talking, you know, he sort of really fitted that sort of stereotype. So I suppose my feeling was, you know, some of the book challenges the stereotype and some of the book confirms the the stereotype. Was that your intention? Was that your experience? Well, I mean, I think it's more simple than that. I think stereotypes come from somewhere. Um, <laughs> there's often a grain of truth in, in every cliche. Um, I, I didn't know what I was going to find when I, I met Stuart Agnew, but I knew that he was a farmer who um, was a UKIP MEP. I knew he'd, uh, he, he had some kind of um, aristocratic connections, and, and I knew that he had been in, in Rhodesia as a young man. So, I, yeah, I made some guesses. Um, I, I, wasn't gonna, I wasn't going to not interview him um, for, those, for those reasons. Um, but in a way, you know, I, I feel that if, if, if you pick him out and say, well, he's a sort of a typical lever, um, but the others aren't, then I kind of, I think I've, I've done a good job because, um, you know, if you talk to a whole bunch of people um, who are united by something um, and only one of them um, strongly fits the cliché that people have, then that, that doesn't seem, that seems, if, if none of them did, that would be really interesting. But, uh, you know, I think one seems, seems reasonable. Um, it, I mean, it, it is... Uh, you, you can only go so far with, with your questioning of people without actually moving in with them. Um, and, um, and, and there were times when um, my sort of speculation about the psychological underpinnings, um, you know, I, I didn't put them in the... In the book, but I, I, I did wonder, um, and uh, there was one person, there was one um, woman in particular, um, who 
she sort of she was she manifested physical signs of um, frustration that she was trapped in Europe. Uh, she was jigging her head, uh, her feet up and down, and wringing her hands. Saying, I feel trapped. I feel trapped. She said. I mean, she you know she seemed perfectly normal and calm um, in most respects. Um, but um, I did think, where where is this coming from? I I, I can't. You know, there's, there's a, there's, I can only dig so so deeply. I, I would have to come back many times and really get to know you, um, perhaps more intensely than I always want, um, in order to understand what's really going on here. Because I, I just didn't feel she was really talking about about Brexit. There was there was something else going on there. Um, but you, 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 as I say, you can only go so far. After a certain point, the, the novelist has to has to write something. So. That's right. There are some. Uh, I suppose maybe it's the. The novelist skill. There are some parts of the book that are extremely funny, I have to say, that are sort of laugh out loud funny, um, which just spring up. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know, upon you, you don't expect them and suddenly you're laughing. Um, a final question. We want to have a, a bit of a discussion with the, the audience before we uh, break up for some drinks. Um, but I did feel as if Something that was running throughout these different, you know, sort of um, uh, reflections on different aspects of, you know, uh, of uh, England today. Um, there was a search for, maybe it was consciously done, I think towards the end you allude to it, a search for a kind of harmony, um, whether there is the possibility to integrate the dreams of leave and the dreams of remain into something that you know, that we can, that we can articulate. Um, my question to you is, you know, how far do you think you got in that attempt to sort of integrate? Do you think it's, uh, it's impossible or is there something there? Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, there, there is a, that desire personally in me to, to try and find some, some inner peace at least um, for myself and, and to try and uh, think of a way out um, of, this, of this divide. I mean, I, I think that... We are faced with some very difficult, objective uh, conditions, um, and um, in addition to the to the things we've we've talked about and and the and the the divides that are very well known, um, I think there's a particular problem, and I suppose this feeds into um, this idea of, of um, people's uh, preoccupation with with the way their personal history relates to to history in general. Um, which is that I think there is a, a relationship between um, the stretching of the generations and um, and 
a sense of uh, hostility towards towards foreigners, towards immigrants. Um, and I, I don't think we've really come to terms with the extent to which uh, our longer lives have changed our world. Uh, it used to be you were young and then you were middle-aged and then if you were lucky you were old and that was it. But now young, middle-aged, old, very old. There's an extra, there's an extra generation, a very, very large and increasing number of people um, who are in a way immigrants from the past. Um, and, you know, they, if, if they, they are immigrants from the past, then, then young people to them are immigrants from the future. And, and I feel that rather than being a kind of a tension between um, natives and immigrants, yes, that's true. That is, that is happening. That's very real. But in a way, that's a kind of a shadow of the much more fundamental unspoken tension between um, the immigrants from the past and the immigrants from the future. Um, if you have a whole bunch of people who were born in the 30s and 40s and 50s um, up against a whole bunch of people who were born in the um, 80s, 90s and noughties, um, then uh, they are coming from, from different worlds. Um, um, and, and I think particularly the, the immigrants from the past, um, there is um, an unspoken uh, concern um, that they're in a a competition for resources, for protection with, um, with incomers from outside the country. Yeah. Uh, things are difficult enough already. So, yeah, to try and find a synthesis amongst all this is, um, is very difficult. Uh, and um, I'm afraid that um, my, the nearest I have come is, is a very radical idea, which, which I myself am not really ready for. Um, but I, it, it, it seems to be the only one which, which makes sense, which is um, that if you believe in internationalism, then you have to take it further. You don't, you don't stop. You don't say, Europe, line, everywhere else. Um, you have to say, yes, I do believe that. I do believe that it is, uh, it is good to have mixing of cultures. I do believe that. Um, I do believe in universal rights. Uh, I do believe in, in universal freedoms. Um, I also believe in the importance of cultural distinctiveness. That is the synthesis that we're working towards. And that can only work fairly um, on a global level. Um, and um, what I would like to be able to do, and as I say, it's, it's very difficult. I don't quite know how it's going to happen. And I don't know if I'm personally ready for it, is, is to lift my eyes um, beyond the Straits of Gibraltar. Uh, beyond um, eastern Romania and eastern Poland um, and, uh, and ask, well, why that border? Why, why there? Um, what can we do um, rather than being preoccupied with um, how many people are coming to this country because of the, the corruption and, and inequality and um, lack of social protection in their own countries? Um, why not ask what it is that is embedded in our systems um, that, uh, that is driving that uh, and what can we do about it. Uh, thank you very much, James. Um, I think we can open up now and have a bit of a discussion for, uh, I suppose, for half an hour or so before we break up for drinks. So uh, put your hand up so that I can see you and, uh, and uh, please uh, jump in. So yeah, there's a lady at the, at the back there. 
thank you very much, James. Um, I do read your things in the London Review of Books and enjoy them very much, the dragons and all that. And I enjoyed your talk. I would like to ask you something about what you call the Fortress Europe, which yes. is used a lot as a term, which um, I think... I think it has quite, quite negative, shady origins, that, that phrase. It's quite a negative term. I know yes. it's not, not, your, not your term. I mean, uh, and, and at the end, you also said that you believe in internationalism. Um, and, of course, well, I do as well. But I just wonder, is the, the cause of people served better when they can move uh, freely into Europe? Or is their cause served better when they are supported at home where their country is poor? And I think this is a real question because obviously the people who we know who travel tend to be people with the money to travel. And I mean, say, you know, I originally come from Germany, but I live here and I, I do know from German literature that the people who came into Germany 2015 were largely young men who had left the families behind, so their families are back home. And I also happen to know that the families at home, the mothers and children, depend on money that is being sent from European countries back home. And the sad truth is they will not endeavor to, do any, to, to sort out their life where they live because this money is coming from abroad, from a Western country. And there's very sad stories. And the issue is, of course, there's exploitation of poor countries going on. And really, you know, maybe it's better if people can actually stay at home and families can stay together. So I believe, I want to finish, I know, going on a bit. But I think internationalism which we used to call socialist internationalism, is a good thing when it comes from the working people. But we're talking globalization, which comes from top down. And that's very different. Thank you. Yes, I mean, it's... Um, it's uh, all these things are related. Um, and uh, the immigration question is a, is a very difficult one. Um, but I think what... What I was talking about in terms of, of internationalism, um, it, it shouldn't be mistaken for the idea of aid. Uh, I mean, the, I know there was the initiative um, on the part of the German government, for example, to, um, to give money to the Turks to look after um, people in uh, Syrian refugees in, in Turkey rather than to have them coming to, uh, coming to Germany. Um, but what I'm talking about... Um, it's, it's something much, much deeper. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a desire to embed in our attitude towards other countries the same kind of um, embedding that you have from the neoliberal side that there must be free markets and that you have from the, the liberal liberal side that there must be human rights. Um, it's, it's a third idea that... Um, you deal with countries not just um, in terms of, of their human rights, not just in terms of, of free markets, but also in terms of how well they look after their people, how, how interested the, the rulers are in, in social justice, in sharing, in, in spreading the wealth. Um, and 
once you start with um, trying to embed that idea in, in, in political discourse, um, into the way that companies are, are made to do their business, uh, into the way that banks operate, um, it will be incredibly difficult. But uh, it's, it has to start with, with the idea that this is necessary. Uh, and so I'm talking about something very, very far-reaching and very long-term. Uh, but I think without that, um, the, these horrific arguments and, and fights um, about um, a million migrants here, people drowning in dinghies crossing the Mediterranean, um, poles being stabbed in English market towns, um, these are going to go on. Uh, I mean, one of the interesting things about, about Europe um, we've been talking about it now as if it was all one kind of organized, sorted, everything is fine space. Uh, but um, it became very clear to me when I wrote about what happened when this Cadbury's factory in the west of England uh, was moved to Poland. Um, the extent to which the, um, the bringing in of Eastern Europe, and particularly Poland, to, um, to the European Union was of enormous benefit to Germany uh, in a way that it wasn't of so much benefit to the countries further west. Um, because, um, yes, Poland has, has benefited. Uh, people are, are richer. They've got better infrastructure. There is more sharing of, of wealth there. But still, you've got this huge inequality um, between the, uh, the wages that people earn in Poland uh, and the wages that people earn in countries like France, Germany, and, and, and Britain. Uh, and um, as much as the Poles are getting richer, um, there's also been a, a dragging down effect um, in the, the parts of the, of the continent um, where uh, personal wages were higher and, and also social benefits were, were better. So um, it's not as if this, this problem is... is uh, doesn't exist in, in Europe, and, and uh, that's one of the iniquitous things about, about the present state of the European Union, that uh, you do have this uh, preservation of this, this massive wage differential between East and West, um, which uh, is detrimental to, uh, I would say, to the welfare of the, uh, of the continent as a whole. We've got a, a question here at the front, and then, and then another question there. Just the, the gentleman with the tie there. Yeah. In my country, we have the Democrats and Republicans. In Germany, where I live, we have the CDU, and CSU, and SPD. Here you have Tory and Labour. All these parties, to an extent, had their beginnings in the heterodox. As they became established, they became more and more orthodox. And now, in various ways, they're all atrophying. To what extent does this affect your country's ability to address the problems you're talking about? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's got a huge effect. I mean, I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not a, a, a political expert at all, a specialist, um, but um, it, it's plain from, from talking to people on the ground how much of a problem it is that there's a mismatch between uh, people's uh, attitudes and the uh, representation of those attitudes in political parties. Um, basically, you have... Um, a, a two-axis political environment, um, but you only have one axis for the parties. Um, each of the main parties 
in Britain and in the United States, um, I think it's fair to say, um, are split two ways. Um, you really have a, a four-way split now. So you have, on, the one, on one axis, you have traditionalists versus liberals, uh, and on the other axis, you have the more familiar left-wing versus right-wing economic arguments. Um, but that produces four extremes rather than two. Um, so uh, you have, in, in, uh, in parts of Britain, uh, you have, in most parts of Britain, in fact, you have um, people who are economically quite socialist. They believe in re redistribution. But uh, culturally, they're more traditionalist. Um, they believe in more traditional gender roles. Um, they uh, they uh, believe in... Um, in um, they're, they're more sceptical about immigration, shall we say. Um, and... Um, and then in the, in the Conservative Party, you have a similar split. You have uh, liberals who um, are um, neoliberal liberals who, who are quite happy with, um, with immigration, with modern ideas, with uh, taking drugs, with, with people being gay. Um, uh, and and they're quite right-wing economically. You have traditionalist Tories who... Uh, I mean, it's... it's it's, it's so obvious um, that um, I find it strange that the mainstream, I can't believe I'm using this expression, the mainstream media uh, doesn't, continues to refer to the Conservatives as if they were one party. I mean, I feel it's more extreme within the Conservative Party. Um, I, I don't understand why we're not talking about a coalition government, which is basically what we have. We, it is a coalition government, not because of those few Irish um, people propping up uh, the Conservatives, because the Conservative is, the party is itself a coalition, uh, really between two quite different parties. Um, there's, there's a very great distance between David Davis and George Osborne. Um, they, um, I, I just don't think, don't see them, I don't know them, but I don't see them being very, very clubbable together. I don't even see Joe Johnson and Boris Johnson, I don't understand how they can sit down at the same table. Uh, anyway. Um, the gentleman in the, in the middle, just behind you, yeah. Um, you kind of started to touch on this now, maybe, but I was just wondering whether you had interviewed anyone or met anyone who was uh, of the internationalist left but was also a lead voter. There's a sort of a sense that your kind of uh, social democracy and uh, goes with a kind of a sort of communitarian mineshaft traditionalist? Well, no is the short answer um, because um, uh, I, I feel I have quite a lot of these people around me. Um, but no, I was... I was but I'm interested in what, to... what your sense of their dreams, in a yes. sense, would be. Well, quite, quite. This is an interesting question. Um, I, I mean, this man might be able to answer because I, I think that you are um, a, an internationalist um, left-winger. Um, but uh, in terms of the, of the specific questions that I set out to answer in the reported essays um, in this book, um, there wasn't really... There aren't... I, I don't know um, how many people like that there are in, in, uh, in Grimsby. Uh, no, I mean, no, actually, to be fair, that's not really true. I, I, I mean, the, 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 the chap I spoke to who... Um, 
who runs a tattoo parlor in, in Grimsby, who when I met him, he was, let me get this right, he'd, he'd been a steel worker, a uh, labor man all his life. He was now working as a UKIP uh, organizer um, for the Cleethorpes candidate. And he was about to get married to the uh, trade union socialist coalition um, candidate in the, for Grimsby in the, uh, in the elections. So, yeah, there was a lot to unpack there. Um, but I'm sure he... Um, I mean, we didn't really talk about his view on, on the, the wider world. Um, it's true. Perhaps he should have. Um, but I strongly suspect that he would, have, he would have been very internationalist in his outlook. Um, I mean, he was very angry with the UKIP candidate that had been imposed in Grimsby because she was a racist. I mean, it was, it was clear from her record. Um, you know, she said that she had only gone along to the National Front meetings um, to do research for a thesis, but, you know, I don't, I don't think anyone really believed that. Um, and um, so he was, you know, at daggers drawn with his, with his fellow party member. I'm, I'm sure he would have had quite um, an open view of, um, of the world as a whole. Um, but um, because we were focusing on, on more local issues, it just didn't, it didn't come up. Um. Question there, just uh, the gentleman there. Oh. Yes, my, my, my question for which perhaps part of an answer has uh, begun is, uh, as a Remainer, uh, can you explain, Chris, your key reasons <laughs> or some of your key reasons for being a lever? Yes, pile on, pile on Chris. This is uh, very much an event about James here. <laughs> you, you can talk to Chris afterwards. I think I think it's a bit fa- unfair to uh, to sort of ambush amb- ambush. Well, Chris. no, I mean, no, yeah, it's I, I like not an ambush. Well, not an ambush because we're your book, and our discussion is about really trying to take on board another view. Um, but if you let me, let me let me answer it in a way that partly addresses the question that the gentleman posed behind. Um, James, you've been sort of talking about this. I think um, certainly on the left. I mean, I was struck at the time of the <clears throat> the referendum, the campaign. Um, most of my neighbours in Cambridge are sort of, you know, I suppose left internationalists, um, mainly in their seventies and eighties, um, and a fair few of them voted for the UK to uh, exit the common market uh, when they had a vote on that in seventy-five, um, and did so without any sense of social sort of um, marginalization or cultural exclusion or being somehow outside of their comfort zone, which was a, you know, a middle-class intellectual sort of um, uh, milieu at the time. Um, Now, fast forward to 2016, um, they felt some were less reluctant, others were obviously reluctant. They felt there was nowhere else to go apart from to vote for Remain, Um, and their life has really been, you know, the experience of the dissolution of a Eurosceptic left tradition, which in the mid-70s was very powerful within the Labour Party um, and has, I think, sort of, uh, you know, uh, essentially uh, disappeared. Um, and so I situate, myself, I situate myself within that tradition, which is a very rich tradition, a very rich radical tradition um, on the left, but in terms of its actual purchase on politics in 2016 uh, as a position on Brexit, it was zero. 
um, the only voices really. I mean, there were some Labour Leave voices that articulated some thoughts, but the dominant voices really were associating Brexit with uh, a few sort of uh, uh, leading Tories and with you know uh, with UKIP and Nigel Farage. So that that's a transition that's taken place, and I think that helps explain a little bit you know where we are today. I mean, I I, um, I, I couldn't vote Leave because of the um, of the people who were running the campaign i just i just couldn't um, that, that that i could never get past that um i i could not be in the same uh campaign as you know i couldn't be on the same side as as those people um it's um it's it's a bit like uh if you if you're buying a, a second a second-hand car, and it's the absolute perfect car. Everything is just exactly what you want. It's, it's a good deal, good price. It's, it's fine. And yet, the guy who's, who's selling it to you is wearing a shirt that says, "You know, fuck, p, you know, whatever, um, foreigners." Um, you know, I, I wouldn't buy that car not because it wasn't the car I wanted, but just because it, it stinks. Um, so I couldn't get past that. Um, but um, that doesn't mean that I am against the fundamental idea of leaving. Um, I mean, I think when you look at the actual idea itself, um, I, the, my first problem with it is um, that I don't think it really solves any problems. I think it's, it's, quite, it's a much less important thing than people have made it, whether we are um, in or out, in, in an abstract way. Um, in, in, a, in the way of, for example, the money that we pay. Um, I, I, I just think it's, it's a kind of a relatively minor outsourcing question compared to the massive problems that this country faces. And I don't, all, as far as I can see, the, the only difference in terms of the disposition of forces, um, political forces in this country that, that moving out of, uh, the only extra freedom that Britain gets, is it's not really any extra freedom at all in the sense that um, there's very, very little that Britain can't do um, within Europe that it, it can do outside it um, in terms of left-wing policies. I think that's, a, that's been shown to be, to be a bit of a myth. Um, but my, apart from those two things, um, I focus most of my um, hostility towards leave um, with the way it's been carried out. Um, I mean, the other uh, massive obstacle to my voting for Brexit... Um, was that it was it was proposed it, it was it was it came out of a referendum that was proposed in a manifesto from a party which in that same manifesto gave absolutely no information about what would happen if the vote went the other way than they expected so it pretended that people were being given a choice um, but in terms of its policy on Europe there was only one choice. You had to vote to remain. Uh, there was absolutely no... Con- that, the contempt uh, towards people who might vote the other way in that manifesto. Um, you, you couldn't trust these people. You wouldn't have, want to have anything to do with them. Um, and, and the whole thing was clearly going to be a disaster if, if it did not go the right way, and it did not go the right way. Um, so, yeah, a 20-year programme for Brexit. Um, sure. Uh, let's talk about it. Uh, but a crash program run by um, run by uh, a person um, who is all stubbornness and no will. Um, no, thank you. 
Very good. And some more hands. Some more hands. Okay, let's take uh, first down here at the front, and then back in the corner. Just down there here on the right. Um, James, I found myself uh, interested in the idea about the stretching of the generations, and I was thinking that that's something that extends across certainly the Western world. Mm. Um, and I wondered if you had come to any views uh, in your perambulations about whether what's happening to us is a peculiarly British dream or maybe even an English dream or is, are we reflecting something that's really global? When, whenever I've written about uh, anything for the, the LRB and even before when I, when I was doing stuff for The Guardian... Um, I've often been surprised to find how a manifestation that I thought was particularly, peculiarly British turns out to be, uh, guess what, it's actually happening everywhere. Um, and I think uh, you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, we can see it. Uh, it's, it's not something that, that, that isn't being talked about. Um, it, it's just taken this particular form in, in Britain. Um, but it, it's, it's happening... I mean... Uh, it's, it's a shame that this word populism has now gained such traction and it's become shorthand for so many different things. It's almost become <coughs> meaningless now. Um, and the, the, the Guardian is, is running a, a series about it at the moment and I'm sure there's a lot of really interesting stuff there. But there's also a lot of mixing up things which are populist with things that are just popular. Um, these things are different. Um, I mean... Uh, popular policies is what uh, successful political parties bring forward um, and there's obviously going to be a lot of overlap between populism and, and, and popular um, but yeah um, generally um, the, uh, you're absolutely right about, about the problem of ageing populations and, and what's interesting about that is it's not just in the rich world um, because the, the simplest and most dramatic uh, medical interventions and cheapest medical interventions um, which uh, will uh, rapidly lengthen lifespan in a, in a poor country which has historically um, had a very low life expectancy and high infant mortality. Um, those, those are quite straightforward to do. It's just a matter of organisation and relatively small amounts of money. So in other words, you have uh, a lot of African countries now. You have China, um, India... All over the world, um, the populations, populations are, are ageing, which you know, is an interesting expression because I'm making it sound as if, oh, what a terrible thing. But it's a great thing. You know, people are living longer. Wonderful. Um, and uh, so, yeah, there's that ambiguity there, but it's, it's universal. And, um, and that Brexitness um, is related to that, perhaps, um, as, as we discussed, the lengthening of the generations. And it is, it is everywhere. Um, it's, I'm, I'm sure you could go to any country in the world, no matter how. I'm sure there's a there's Brexitness in in Mongolia. Um, we just have to go there and uh, and track it down. I mean, you know, I I thought my last um, non-fiction book was about privatisation, and and I'd always thought of um, privatisation as being you know very much a Margaret Thatcher thing, um, and um, yes, it was influential subsequently in countries around the world, but. What I realised was that actually um, the Dutch were very, very zealous privatisers as well. 
Um, and um, they, they gave the British a, a run for their money in terms of neoliberal policies and still do. Um, and, um, yeah, it, it's one of the, the things about... This, this, I talked at the beginning about the kind of the British preoccupation of um, all sides, leavers and remainers, uh, in this debate. And um, that's another aspect of, of lifting your eyes beyond the borders of your own country and, and your own continent um, and, and seeing things in a global context. We've got uh, time just for one, one more question, I'm afraid, and then we'll break up for some drinks. So the woman in the corner there, she had her hand up. Just, just hang on a sec. I was very interested to know whether any of the people you spoke to when you asked about their dreams, did, did nobody talk to you about peace and what the European Union grew out of and keeping away from having another major... I know there have been terrible things, but another major war, which was one of the starting points of coming together in Europe. Did nobody have that as a dream? Well, that's a use of the word dream that is rather different from the way that I'm using it in the book. Um, you know, dream, what does it mean? It means uh, visions you have when you sleep. Um, it's come to mean, relatively recently, it's come to mean a thing that you want to happen. Um, and that's not really the kind of... I'm, I'm using dreaming in a slightly different way in the, in the kind of Australian Aboriginal sense of, of a, um, a worldview, of a, a view that, that relates the, the present to the past and the kind of accumulation of all your... Um, of all your, your, your representation of the world beyond that which you immediately know. Um, so it's, it's, it's a bit different. But um, to answer your question, no. Um, it's not... It, it is interesting and disturbing, very disturbing, um, the extent to which um, people are fascinated... And people on, particularly on the Lever side, and this is, this is backed up by, by polls and, and statistics and, and, and by you know, what, what you see and, and, and read and hear, um, that there's a fascination with military history, with Britain's past wars, um, and um, the idea that Britain always wins, um, the idea that war is great, but at the same time, a complete and utter complacency that um, this could never happen again. It's not that people don't want peace. It's just that they have it um, and they think it's going to go away. Um, it's never going to go away, rather. Um, and, uh, yeah, I find it, I find it troubling. Um, it's, um, it's, it's a very dark note to end on. Um, I, have, I have wondered um, at, at my most pessimistic times over the past few years whether the... Um, whether the extreme divisions that are um, that were always there but have been brought to light, this kind of um, bouncing back and forth of, of the ball of enmity, and it gets bigger and heavier each time um, that's happened lately. I've just wondered how far this could go, um, and you know, partly influenced, I suppose, by my uh, very very close and perhaps slightly obsessive tracking of, of how Ukraine, which was for 20 years a completely peaceful country, um, went to a country in a state of war in a very, very short space of time. And, and following all the steps, how, um, how it, it went, you know, could that happen here? 
Uh, and um, I don't think people should be complacent um, and never say never. I don't think it will happen. Um, I don't think there will be violence, um, even if, um, and I don't personally think it's a good idea, even if there were a second referendum and, and somehow remain one, um, I, I still don't think it would, be, it would lead to a breakdown of civil order. But um, I think you're, it's good that you raised the question because... Um, I, I, think it, it, I think people should be talking about it. I think um, it's, uh, it's, it's something to have... It's such a dangerous thing to put into the imagination because if you, you fear that if, if once you put something like that in people's imagination, you never know where, where it's going to go. You know, the next thing, people are sort of tying kitchen knives to broom poles. Um, <laughs> but, um, but at the same time, if you don't imagine it, then how can you, 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 you'd be surprised when it suddenly manifests itself, and that's not a good thing either. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's worth, I think it's worth having at the back of, of one's mind. Um, can I just say, before we finish, um, and it has been mentioned a couple of times about the um, essays in, in the LRB, um, I really must um, thank the London Review of Books um, without whom this, this book would have been absolutely impossible. They've been extraordinarily tolerant of the immense time that I've taken to research uh, and write these pieces. Um, and, um, and they've supported me all the way. And I'm, I am very, very grateful to that uh, wonderful magazine. Uh, long, may it, long may it continue. Um, before we finish, let me um, remind you that there are some very handsome, hardback copies of of James's uh, book here and as a as an experienced author I'm sure he'll be happy to sign multiple copies um, so before we break up for, for drinks let's just thank uh, thank James for his, his great contribution thanks for listening to find out more about London Review Bookshop events visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events